Hey folks, this is Tim Stafford. Welcome to, I don't know, um, a side project, an, ex an experiment, uh, a little bit of randomness in the middle of your week. Really, I think if Voxology is the record, then this is the B-sides. I've been wanting a place to, uh, to kind of follow you know, some loose threads, um, some uh, ideas that are a little bit off the beaten path to dive down a few rabbit holes, maybe. I got a lot of ideas that I have just folded up neatly in my back pocket, odds and ends that I've gathered as they've floated through the air. Things that I think, uh, that I think are interesting, and maybe you will too, who knows. But I thought, what better place to start than with my good friend Dr. Timothy Gombas in a conversation about U2 and theology. If you listen to uh, Voxology or um, Gombas' podcast, Faith Improvised, you probably heard this teased a little bit. There are a lot of fun concepts and themes that uh, Bono and the boys and U2 have unfolded over the years. Ideas of faith of God, of community, what it means for all of us to exist together, what it means for all of us to exist in a relationship with this deity that we have come to know as Yahweh. I don't know. There's some fun stuff in there. One of the things you may have learned uh, in the years that I've been on Voxology is that I'm a lover of language, and I'm a lover of art. I'm a lover of poetry and of music. One of my favorite movies of all time, one that will make me cry every single time that I watch it, is a little film from 1989 called Dead Poets Society. The film came at a point in my life where, I don't know, things were unlocking, the world was being made small while the universe was expanding, and there's something about the way that Robin Williams' character talks about poetry and language and looking for the beauty in the world, sucking the marrow out of life, as he says. Something in there clicked for me. Something was, I don't know, ignited. Words and language. No matter what anybody tells you, words and ideas can change the world. Words and ideas can change the world. I've come to believe that. I've come to see it all over the place. For better or for worse, words ignite hate. Words can make us fall in love. We don't read and write poetry because it's cute. We read and write poetry because we are members of the human race. And the human race is filled with passion. And medicine, law, business, engineering, these are noble pursuits and necessary to sustain life. But poetry, beauty, romance, love, these are what we stay alive for. To quote from Whitman, O me, O life of the questions of these recurring, of the, of endless, the endless trains, trains of, the of the faithless, of cities, of cities filled, filled with the, the foolish, foolish, of myself forever reproaching myself, for who more foolish than I, and who more faithless, of eyes that vainly crave the light, of the objects mean, of the struggle ever renewed, of the poor results of all, of the plodding and sordid crowds I see around me, of the empty and useless years of the rest, with the rest me intertwined, 
the question, O oh me, so sad recurring, what good amid these, O oh me, O oh life? Answer, that you are here, that life exists in identity, that the powerful play goes on, and you may contribute a verse. I love it. Maybe it's sappy. I don't know. That the powerful play goes on and that you may contribute a verse. Now, that may hit everybody in different places. To some of you, you may be saying, what? And that's okay. You know, Mike has, uh, a few times has referenced the N.T. Wright um, idea of this all being a five-act play and that we are in the fifth act, which is improvisation. And to me, improvisation has always been music. It's been people getting up in a room together, not knowing exactly what they're going to do, but finding harmony together, finding melody together, and creating something with intent. But there is something to this idea of paying attention, of looking around and looking for the poetry in one another, in the world at large. Artists and poets have often been called the truth-tellers of our time. That in each era, they're the ones that will speak to the truth and to the core of what it means to be human and what it means to wrestle with the divine. And that's what we're going to be looking at a little bit here today with you too. So, I guess the long and the short of it is this little B-side podcast We'll be looking at the world through 3D glasses, with all the colors and the complexities of this long road that we're walking together. I'm excited. I know uh, Mr. Gomez is excited for this small series that we're starting off with. We hope that uh, you'll find some joy and entertainment in it also. I don't know. But for the sake of melodrama, I am, we are, and this is The Wanderer. doing this tim i'm really glad doing it yeah this is a fun i i feel like this has been a um ongoing conversation in my life uh so to kind of give it some you know to give it some structure and give it some wings so to speak is kind of a fun idea yeah i don't yeah, know you how many youtube fans there are in our listenership it may be there may be 15 of you out there welcome seriously what does it take you've got to be a little bit older like i remember when i started teaching back in the early 2000s i would drop you two references and there'd be yeah. one or two people be like oh yeah and then after a while it was like yeah i think my dad listens to them <laughs> totally. <laughs> these are college students I well was there like, is that right. weird like um it, the same thing happened with the chili peppers i have a, a younger brother who is He's 10 years younger than me. And so he would inherit the music that I listened to by force. I would just yeah. like you're, listen to this. This but, is the music. Uh, the, every band has phases. And um, every, everyone eventually gets into a latter half of their career at least. And the 2000s did that for a few of those bands. And that happened with the Chili Peppers too, where my little brother was like, oh, 
these they had an album called Stadium Arcadium and it was kind of a big thing and all these kids he would complain that these kids were like I just discovered this band called the Chili Peppers it's like they've been around for like 20 years yeah totally and I think uh all that you can't leave behind in some ways did that with you too as well where some people were like oh have you heard this song Beautiful Day or have you heard of this band U2 and it's like yes I've heard of this band U2. <laughs> <laughs> that is hilarious yeah they've been around i mean when you think about it so uh 1980 i mean yeah. they, you know that was their album so they've been around a little bit before then so i mean like they were so definitive of rock and roll in the 80s yep they their 90s period was just it was wild and you know they lost some people um <laughs> but they i think they really pressed into some new interesting things and there's rich stuff there and we'll talk about it. But yeah, then the two thousands is a completely different era. And yeah. then the teens. So it's like, yeah, yeah 40 years. That's just yeah. really incredible. And yeah. all those transitions, it's yeah. really remarkable. Yeah. Crazy. So what I, what I find interesting is to talk about you too, with somebody who has seriously cultivated literary sensibilities like yourself. <laughs> so like you and I, uh, obviously at some level we're YouTube fans. Yes. Um, but beyond that, there's there, you know, you and I both have felt like a far deeper resonance. Right. The fandom doesn't really kind of capture that. And, um, you know, you, one lens for you to look at your life narrative is to track it through some of their work. Mm -hmm. And that's been really significant for me as well. So, um, that's why I, I dig talking to you about it. Yeah. Anytime, you know, anytime you've, sort of meet, I have a friend who's really into rush. <clears throat> and so when he unpacks like what they're all about right. and their larger project, it's like, Oh yeah, cool. Right. Um, you know, so it's like, you could be a fan, but there's something about, um, taking things to a deeper level to really discover what genuine artists are doing. So yeah. I don't so know. That's a, as a preface, I think that's an interesting, so a, you know, one of the things we want to do with this little mini series is kind of crack into um, ideas and, and stuff that kind of permeates from lyrical content or album arcs or even, uh, real life antics and, you know, things that Bono has invested in, etc. And I think we'll get to a lot of that stuff in the coming episodes. The other thing is you and I have talked about like not doing this as U2 fans, which you just kind of articulated. Yeah. Like we, this isn't just two you two nerds sitting down and be like, oh, these guys are the bee's knees. They're so great. <laughs> so that's that won't be this if you're if you're listening and you're like, I don't want to listen to two people geek out on YouTube. That isn't we're not leaning into that. Uh we're not using we're not flexing those muscles. Yeah. Um the other thing that I think is interesting, I don't think we have to necessarily hit this today, but I really I, a conversation that I've had a lot lately is trying to as we've been trying to, you know, on Vox, on Voxology, as we have been um, playing around with these new creation dynamics, old creation dynamics, um, methods of understanding God's uh, narrative and our vocation, our, you know, etc. Worship has become a really interesting um, feature that it hasn't been cracked yet. It's not something that we've cracked yet. And hmm. we've actually had a few people write in asking about like, where, what is worship in the new creation dynamic? How does this work? How does this fit? I'm like, I don't know, but I think it's interesting to wrestle with because m w music does something to us. It's a really, f you don't have to be 
Like I love playing music. I love writing music. I love my relationship to the physical, tangible element of music. When I'm teaching English uh, at the university here, I always use music and harmony, like the way that sound works into your ears mm-hmm. and how the waves of harmony, they move together. And anyone, even an untrained ear understands harmony because it hits and it's pleasing yeah. and it's pleasant. And discord, when two sound waves cross each other and they hit, you don't have to have any musical knowledge to know someone's singing off key. Yeah, your ear tells you this is incorrect. And so it's interesting that we are built, that harmony is built into, you know, the universe. It's built into mm-hmm. our, our makeup. And music yeah, totally, moves man. people with with no knowledge of theory or yeah. chord, chord changes or any of that kind of stuff. So I think that's interesting to me. Uh, poetry is what is my like, that was my focus in college when I was getting my master's and so on. Like poetry was kind of my jam. Poetry is in some ways you could relate it to you too. And the fact that people don't uh, seek it out or relate to it anymore or really like poetry anymore or know how to approach it. Uh, it's kind of a, a weird, uh, uh, it's going through some real tough, uh, growing pains right now. Uh, in the last 15 years or so, poetry became like the spoken word movement mm-hmm. and lost a lot of poetic content and came, became performative. Mm. When you look at a lot of spoken word on paper, it lacks poetic merit. Yeah, um, totally. But it is a performative piece. So when I look at lyrical content and the way that a band like U2 and someone like Bono weaves poetry into uh, what he does, there's something about poetry that inspires humanity. And you don't, again, don't have to have um, a poetic understanding or a poetic training to right. be inspired by a metaphor yeah. or be inspired by... Um, parables you know I, I think it's i don't think it's i don't think it's random that jesus used parables so much yeah you can God be overwhelmed used. by the power of it without being able to explain what's happening yeah we love you know story I mean? yeah we love that kind of stuff so i think that that was a really long way of saying i think that a lot of what we'll be doing is playing around with those kind of elements and why those are important and uh, yeah the power yeah and then also personal Personally, like how they've meant a lot to us. Absolutely. You know, and how they open the world. Yep. You know, because I think that's what so many of their songs do. It's like they, you know, you've had those experiences you can't explain or you can't kind of get words to sort of get your head around. And then, a, but a song can help you. A song can open up possibilities, you know. Yeah, how often do you see that where it's like, some of it's hyperbolic or maybe not where people, I don't want to take that away from them. You'll, you'll see like, you know, so, so-and-so your music saved my life or change, yeah. you know? And so there's, there's, totally. there's power in there that is, uh, interesting. I, I mean, it, for me, it's been fascinating to me my entire life and I still, my fascination with it has only grown. It has not wavered or diminished over time. Cause it's genuine art. Yeah. It's Good the stuff. real deal. So Tim, tell why don't you start by just narrating your experience with the band? When did you first hear of them? Uh, what was the first albums that you listened to? What did they, you know, your yeah. your, your journey? My journey, my YouTube. We're talking, yeah, you're you're wandering with the yes. band. Yeah, if we use that sort of as a lens. Yeah. So, yeah, um, my first memory 
of U2 is um, is the War album. It was Sunday Bloody Sunday, and being on the playground and hearing it. I mean, it, I as a musician, there's something really interesting where, um, like the Edge, who plays guitar in U2, he has a very signature style and sound mm-hmm. that you can hear it and you know it's him. Oh yeah. And there's a lot of guitar players in the world and history that have that same kind of thing where they have a style that you can pick out. Mm-hmm. And if it's a new song, you didn't know that in new music, you hear it and you're like, oh, that sounds like, you know, Jimmy Page. Or that sounds like so-and-so. Like you can pick apart those kind of things. Um, Larry Mullen Jr. has, he's one of the few drummers in history that I can think of. There's a few other ones, but that has a style that you can be like, oh, that sounds like Larry. Mm-hmm. And so, almost everybody knows the like you just know oh, totally man. right off the bat exactly where you are. No guitar or bass comes in yet, and you're instantly locked into the emotion of that particular song mm-hmm. from the from a snare drum. That's it. Yep. Which is pretty rad. I mean, it's a that's a you know a huge prop to him that that's kind of a so that was the first. Uh, and I think you and I have talked about like the. Um, what is it called the red rocks concert that was oh yeah um, red rocks was at 83 yeah somewhere around there and it was the the white flag waving bono era mullet bono yeah. era and um <laughs> i think you and i have joked about the thickest mullet in the history of rock and roll i think i think he's tried to take some um you know he's tried to say that he may be invented the mullet that may be stretching but um <laughs> I know that a lot of people, anytime you go to the Red Rocks is like a bucket list concert venue. And I've, I have friends who are in bands who have played there and, and have heard other bands talk about getting there and being so disappointed that there weren't big fire pits on the That's stage. That's hilarious. Part. Yeah. I guess, yeah, that was just a one, a one-time thing. But anyway, um, that was my, uh, how I became familiar with them. And then Joshua Tree is what kind of, you know, blows it wide open. Oh, yeah. Um, Unforgettable Fire was an album that I didn't lock into in my youth. It was one that I found really more in the last 10 years or so. Has that become hmm. an album that I really appreciate? Yeah. Other than like, you know, Pride or Bad uh, were songs that were, you know, you were familiar with. Pride was a song that even as a prepubescent boy, I couldn't sing. The I couldn't reach the <laughs> in the name of love yeah. part. Like that song is a oh yeah a vocal juggernaut. Yeah. Um, Joshua Tree was a big, that that was the record where you could say, dad, um, you know, when when mom and dad are saying like, you're only going to listen to Christian music, like, well, these guys are, these guys are Christians. Oh, totally. (laughs) Like, really? I was like, yeah. Uh, you know, this is about heaven and this is about, uh, you know, whatever. So they became like a, they became like the first okay crossover type of band Um, but for me, you know, I was young for both those things, but for me, when I, I can remember specifically hearing the guitar part for zoo station. Oh, wow. The the opening track on Octave. I was old enough then I was going into high school or so. And that record was huge. Just, uh, you know, a few, Rolling Stones uh, greatest uh, greatest rock album of all time for Rolling yeah. Stones, and I don't know crazy. that I would argue against oh, totally. that. Like it's um, if you're not familiar with Octane Baby, that album starts with just a 
Mm-hmm. And it's this just a chainsaw, which is funny because that's how they described the sound was, was, what is the sound of Octane Baby? It's the sound of four men cutting down a Joshua tree. Mm-hmm. Just like Yeah, <laughs> totally. They went, they completely reinvented themselves. Yeah, it was genius. And, uh, you know, there, I, you, I think I've talked to you about it before, but I, there was a, a book that accompanied the writing of that record through the end of that tour called until the end of the world. And, um, you know, my best friend in high school, Matt and I would, we read that book multiple times. And, um, there was a guy in town that was a big grateful dead bootlegger and he would buy Matt's older brother dead bootlegs all the time. So we went in there and I was like, Hey, can you get us U2 bootlegs? And he's like, yeah. So he would hunt down these like U2, um, the tour for that was zoo TV and he would hunt down these mm-hmm. zoo TV bootlegs for us that we would, you know, cause Bono will change his lyrical content yeah, live to right. adapt to either a town or a place or an event or, um, uh, even biblical references or other yeah. song references. Uh, it's fun to play with how they would reinterpret music based on time and place. Oh yeah. So that Octane Baby, Zuropa, those were really big um, records for me. That's a significant time of your life when you're going into high school. I mean, yes. everything's changing for you. Your view of yourself, your world is changing. I mean, how did that album sort of serve to interpret things and serve as like a, a companion in that era? That's a great question. Um, I think the book, that book helped quite a bit because uh you two had a very pious they were very uh earnest mm-hmm. in the 80s the joshua tree yeah yeah and there was a there and that tour yeah and their interviews every 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 way that you encountered the band in that time period was very earnest it was very uh stoic and um and in some ways felt juvenile and yeah. so one of the things that I've learned from you two uh, as a whole, and maybe from Bono in particular, has been, um, and, I, and I've mentioned this on Vox before about um, the power in being able to change your mind, to learn <laughs> something, new information has come to light. <laughs> and <laughs> to throw a Lebowski in there. Um, Love it. They, uh, so Kurt Cobain, I remember watching an interview with him and they were uh, he was going on a stadium tours or not a state, like a big arena tour. And people are like, Hey, you know, you used to say you would never do this. You would never play these big arenas. You had this punk rock ethic. You would never do this. What happened? He's like, I changed my mind. And as a young teenager, I was like, mm. Whoa, yeah. there's a lot of power and freedom in being able to say like, I changed my mind because I have a better understanding of something now. Yeah. And with you too, I remember, uh, in the 2000s when he was sitting with George Bush and meeting with him and people were like, dude, what are you doing? Like, cause it was coming mm-hmm. up the Clinton era where he was close to the Clinton and was doing yeah. a lot of work overseas and, um, trying to push through Jubilee and that kind of stuff mm-hmm. that you get to George Bush. And like, he's in a lot of ways was antithetical to your belief system. And, and Bono's approach at that point was like, I will sit with anyone and work with anybody who is willing to work for good. Mm-hmm. regardless of and so that was a profound thing for me because yeah. i was really into punk through the adolescent years and i was really into the idea of 
fighting against and fighting for and yeah punk has a very like aggressive ethic in that way Mm -hmm. uh watching bono settle out of that into a posture of like what's important is not how i do this what's important is if it gets done yeah and i was like that's there's like that was a learning i learned from that like that was that opened that broadened the way that i approach my neighbor or broadens the way i approach like my parents who i do not share any political (laughs) anything with uh it enabled me to not fight them and be um like to hold contempt towards them but to instead engage them as individuals who sit on this planet with me but don't see the world exactly the same way i do so that's like yeah it can be a valuable thing to that punk perspective it calls out it notes injustice it, it notes corruption and all that but i mean if that's your only perspective yeah you can be become this character that's just against with you know with no yeah. remainder just instead shouting of having at a wall some yeah totally over just over angry all the time yeah so um that was a long way to come back to octung baby being a time period where i felt like the earnestness of the 80s matured and yeah. um, the uh, confines of Christianity, if I can put it that way, of uh, thinking that uh, the idea of the straight and narrow mm-hmm. or um, faith, faith being shackles or tunnel vision, mm-hmm. you, saw, you saw a group of individuals that got into their 30s and they were kind of like, Man, this is all bigger than yeah. I complexity, thought it was. yes, layers, <laughs> exactly. So you know, sitting, going to Berlin uh, at at the time that the that the Berlin Wall was being torn down, um, they recorded that record there. They're watching out their window as the wall is coming down. Oh my word! They're yeah. seeing this electricity of humanity. Um, that's been a big thing for me lately. Is when I think about Paul talking about being the biggest sinner in the room, and if I think mm-hmm. about sin as um, being caught in these cycles in which I literally get trapped and I can't, it's hard to break these cycles and stuff. When mm-hmm. I think about it that way, when I walk into a room, I am the biggest sinner in the room. I, I understand that idea of uh, being caught in something and the messiness of humanity and God's uh, consistent pursuit as we've remained messy or gotten messier. Mm-hmm. Uh, I find a little bit of beauty in the messiness of who we are. And mm-hmm. I feel like, you know, the book that until the end of the world book opens and Bono's like, you know, he's hung over, he's in a house rental. He fell asleep in a t-shirt and nothing else. And the owners of the house came in, like not knowing that he was supposed to, that he was renting it or something. And, you know, he didn't have pants on or something and they're yelling at him in German and he didn't know how to like <laughs> respond. And the wall was being torn out down outside the window. And there was so much like mess of humanity everywhere that mm-hmm. they go into the studio and they somehow find a sound that represents that mess. Wow. Yeah. And I, I just, I think there's something really as being a teenager and trying to wrestle with the planet or not the plant, but just existence in the world mm-hmm. and understand everything. It was so much more than like, be good to go to heaven or or don't be good and go to yeah. hell. It was like, right. oh, there's there's different colors here and there's different like yeah. there's a lot of things for me to, to look at and wrestle with. So mm-hmm. I don't know if that answers your question, but that record kind of did that. Um, and, and it also, uh, Bono's... Um, 
handle of metaphor uh, just continued to grow. And Zuropa oh, yeah. also really started to, to delve into, you know, daddy's going to pay for your crash car. And, yeah. Um, and then, and, you know, a song like The Wanderer or something like that. So there are mm-hmm. these elements of metaphor that or I've She moves in mysterious loved. ways. Yeah. Well, I've always appreciated that idea that a lot of his songs... Um, you know, someone said it early on that a lot of U2's music is worship music that Bono has changed the pronouns or has changed things in. I was like, yeah, I don't know if that's true or not, but there is something to the idea of how he wrestles with faith and God and spirituality and does it in a way that, I don't know, there's just so much power in metaphor and there's so much power in that it, it opens up, it, it, opens up accessibility to Mm -hmm. topics that you wouldn't normally feel that you had a yeah the lyrics are allusive enough that you could sort of like mysterious ways i mean when you start to understand that there's you know that john is john the baptist in in the um and that it's this it's this character that you know maybe finds himself in prison and burned out and like disappointed with the messiah and all this and it's like let the daylight in to fill up the room i don't know there's just there's enough openness with the characters that are created in their music that um that a mini drama is launched and it's a drama that is that's discernible but open-ended enough that you could find yourself there and it kind of interprets experience for you or at least invites you to think about think about things from this perspective yeah with the sexiest baseline of all time oh totally (laughs) (laughs) absolutely it doesn't hurt (laughs) it doesn't hurt yeah so that was you know that's a that record was a big um i mean i wore it out i had to order multiple copies of it because i literally burned through it was it uh did you have no problem transitioning from the joshua tree sound to the octoon baby sound and like it, it made sense to you and you got it and you dug it i mean i it yeah i think mostly because i was young yeah so if i maybe if i was in my 20s or 30s and that happened i'd be like what is that true i think that's true i've never been like a you know pearl jam is you know arguably my favorite band of all time i'm not one of those people that's like the 10 album is the only sound like that 10 isn't even in my top four favorite records of theirs. Mm. So I've always been fairly open to embracing an artist, finding new sonic ways to express themselves. Even with like the songs of innocence and experience, like these later albums, these last two records that the U2 has done. um, When I read reviews and people just tear at it. Yeah. I think about if I was to hear those records in an isolated place like if if you two didn't exist before those two records yeah I think people would lose their minds on oh totally man on what it was oh, yeah instead you have to carry 40 years of yeah uh your relationship expectations that, yeah. yeah yeah but i mean uh so for me high school ended with pop and oh, wow. um that was the first concert that i saw them and tour on also, Zoo TV, that tour for Octane Baby, you know, you had Mr. McFisto and The yeah. Fly and these characters. Bono was was bringing theatrical elements into the concert. It wasn't just him in the mullet 
yeah you know running around, <laughs> running around changing the world <laughs> he came out dressed like the devil and call and made phone calls to the president of the united states or called absolutely like, bananas it's so and it was so it felt so dangerous but mm-hmm. playful um which is just uh, you know dangerous and playful that, that's such a an a interesting dance of yeah <laughs> you know so i just loved it i loved everything about it the tour was overwhelming um, I'd never seen anything like it before. I think at the same time that Pink Floyd did that big pulse tour and that was, they had a pretty big wall of things in that, that was also mm-hmm. kind of like, wow, these guys are really embracing a theatrical element. But you know, yeah, Mr. it was Mac that Fisto, era, the early nineties of like super optimism, the wall had come down and like all your dreams are going to come true. Here's a ton of TV. Here's big spectacle lights. And, you know, I mean, it was their way of sort of, um, kind of sending up the modern world like let's just all right let's just take the wonder and spectacle and optimism of technology and turn it up to 11 and just see what that gives us and it's that's what that tour was like that tour feels to me like they took 10 years to plan it i know that's not the case yeah but like the stuff that you're talking about um you know when they would flash all these words on the screens and i think you and i've talked about how like one of the words was believe Mm -hmm. and, and how this is always made me feel divine about language. Mm-hmm. I just like, I am a lover of language. Yeah. And that's why poetry, poetry is literally just taking all the words that you already know. It's your English lexicon, but the way you put them together in one line can open someone's mind or open someone's heart. All yeah. it is is putting those words in a different order. But yeah. it's like, they carry so much power. Like words start wars, words cause people yeah. to fall in love. Like. It's really the the word is just such a I, I've just so much like I'm I'm in awe of language. And so looking at the word believe and that the word what the word believe means, yeah, and that the word lie sits in the middle of believe. Yeah. It's like that's it's nuts. How, how did that happen? Like it's just I it blows my mind. Those little stupid things like that, I will just sit and tumbled dry on it forever like it's just there's so much you could just put that on a page the way they did where they like they made the word lie change color and inside the word believe so that it if you looked at it on a piece of paper you could just sit there and kind of wrestle with that one word for for like a while just like totally man (laughs) totally but that's like that's what that was all about yeah that was and that was one screenshot of a gazillion words all those other words totally man the amount of like because when you read about them recording that record they were kind of like maybe we're done like Mm -hmm. they ended the rattle and hum tour saying you know we have to go away and dream it all up again they knew that they had they had exhausted that 80s sound Mm -hmm. that 80s posture of piety yeah exactly and then when they're in the studio for octung baby they're just like sitting there and no mm-hmm. one knew what to do until like uh and bono and edge kind of alienated adam and um larry mullen jr because they're locking into more uh you know craft worky dance yeah. kind of music uh and you know the rhythm section of the band was like no what yeah, <laughs> we're the rhythm we section of the band yeah carrying you guys Um, and you'll hear them talk about how the edge was just sitting in the studio and they were all just kind of twiddling their thumbs and he started playing the um chords for one Mm. and larry like popped up and ran in and started playing drums and bono just started 
making up words, yeah. making up words that essentially are the words that are on the printed version of that. Yeah, song. it's crazy. That you know is arguably one of the best songs ever written ever. Mm. Uh, even Axl Rose, I remember reading at the time, was just like, like, how did you write that song? And how did I like? I want that song. Like, <laughs> where did you get that song? Wow. Yeah, that's awesome. How about you? Um, man, I think it was for me. It was uh, my cousin gave me, gave me. Uh, it was 1982, and he gave me um, uh, War and Live Under a Blood Red Sky, and um, I, I was really into music at that point. Um, I mean, I was only 10 years old, but um, just starting to become aware of music and just listen to everything I could, you know, um, it gave me those two albums and it just was like, like you said, edges guitar, there was like this piercing passionate sound that they had that wasn't like any of the other kind of polished stuff I was listening to. Yeah. And it just stood out and was so singular. And, um, I, man, I must've worn those tapes out. And uh, I think at some point I got boy in October and um, just listened to him constantly. And the funny thing is, I mean, looking back and reading more about them now and, you know, Bono's own self-reflections on his, um, on their songwriting lack of skills on the first few albums. It's really right. funny because I remember listening to boy in October and thinking like, what's the song about? Like, it's just, <laughs> it's like every line was just written. I, and it's funny. Cause uh, a couple weeks ago, I, I drove out to Phoenix to help my daughter move. And so I, I listened, um, I listened to all the albums in a row. Just it's all chronologically the, straight. Yeah. Through. Yeah. Chronologically. And um, it was, it's so fascinating to hear the continuities of sound and also their growth as songwriters. Yeah. When it comes to uh, Unforgettable Fire, it's like, all right, these are, they're starting to get it. These are coherent narratives or this is, um, this, this has an idea that they're kind of unfolding. Um, and absolutely. Then when you get to Joshua Tree, it's, you know, they, they found their voice, they found it. Totally. But those are early albums. It was just, you know, um, I don't even know. I mean, they were, it was just shouting out. I mean, Bono is just so full of energy. He's just, you know, <laughs> just belting sounds out, you know, it's just really, but which is funny for people to watch. If you go on YouTube and, and watch any live performances from those really early eighties, they're hilarious. Oh yeah. It's like, he, it's funny. Cause now in more recent concerts, uh, after the Joshua tree, um, he's he's so studied and careful like with his body and his movements and in those early concerts it's like this like spastic irish totally. kid just like <laughs> completely just prancing around and no yeah. control and just all passion but that was that captured me i just love their sound and then uh when unforgettable fire came out um that that also um i mean you get you get this as a four as an enneagram four um just the the capacity to kind of hold together like rage uh punk you know uh celebratory sounds and and but also brooding and dark yeah and unforgettable fire just captured me with that it was haunting and it was like even that the the cover art um that you know kind of foggy picture of that castle yeah 
um, I was just like, this is another world. And I, um, you know, I was preteen at that time. And so like everything's starting to change and you're, you know, you're, everything's getting wonky and that album really, it, it was the perfect sound for that time. And, um, I, I love that album. And then what's, what's interesting is to listen to it now all the way through and to kind of recall that, that sense of things, that kind of haunting beauty is just, it, it, it bring it, it's really Those records are not just these records, but all records are serve as such interesting, uh, like diary entries. Oh yeah. They're eras and they bring back the feeling, um, of those eras. And I think it's also kind of fun to look back in parts of your life and sort of look at your life again from that perspective. Um, I was so into pop culture and, and paid very close attention. And of course to you two in those days. And so like 85 was live aid mm-hmm. and I mean, you two and boomtown rats and, um, you know, Bob Geldof was a big part of that. And, you know, the police played that. I mean, all those bands, I just loved all these bands that were, that played live aid and, uh, you two the most when that, that they were getting huge globally and especially in Britain. Um, and so by the time Joshua tree came out, it was just, it had been building for some time. Yeah, totally. So when that came out, they just took over the world. Um, yeah, I remember getting that Rolling Stone issue in 1987 and, um, you know, rock's hottest ticket. Yep. <laughs> um, cause they were massive and they just blew up. And then, uh, I remember going to the record store the day Joshua tree came out to get the CD. And that's back when they had, they came in these large cardboard cases totally. and it just was so over the top, so wasteful, but you know, <laughs> of course I had to like cut it apart very carefully and put it up on my wall. <laughs> um, so yeah, that was, um, that album I wore out as well. And that was really, really significant for me. Um, because that was at a time where that kind of piety made really good sense. Totally. Um, even though for my, for myself, like my own personal narrative actually runs slightly reverse from like my life at the time of Joshua Tree to Octane Baby and U2's trajectory um, because I got what they were all about. Um, and I had that earnestness about like, yeah, stuff is messed up with the world and has to change. Um, but like the my pious side was like, I was becoming in early high school years disillusioned with the church. I'm like, I'm done with that. Um, and was, you know, thinking, you know, um, you know, partying makes good sense to me. All my mm-hmm. buddies are partying. Let's just get crazy. Um, but for some reason, still the Joshua tree, just that album was awesome. I yeah. went to see that show in October of 1987 in Chicago. And it's funny. Cause yeah, I told my parents, this is a Christian band, you know, just like, <laughs> just like I had gone to see Petra live. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to go see this other Christian band live. Yeah. And, um, I mean, that was, that show was just absolutely raucous, but it was so, it was overwhelming to me because it was, I mean, we were like in the ninth row and, um, it, yeah, it was all just this band that had sort of formed such a significant part of my imagination in my coming of age is right there. Yeah. You know, and it's, it was so incredible. Yeah. Because they're almost um, mythical before oh, totally. you see them in flesh. 
Oh, it's just the, the, it's the nuttiest thing. So um, I went away to Christian college in 1990 and sort of had a, a there was like a went through a several year long pious phase uh, where I felt like to be a good Christian, I was interested in being a, a um, committed Christian and it felt like the only framework for that was like separation from, mm-hmm. and, um, and you too at the time was going in a different direction, which I didn't understand. Um, because everything for me at that time was moving from complexity to simplicity, clarity, black and white, and they were going at exactly the opposite direction. So we cut across like this. Totally, man. (laughs) No, absolutely. Ships passing in the night. It was, um, yeah, I remember Bono saying something like, you know, we're going in this new direction. We're going to lose a lot of the pop kids. And I was like, what? That's, that's that's surely not me. But then I heard their sound. I was like, yeah, I don't get it. And saw everything (laughs) that they were doing. I, I just didn't understand it. Come to find out. So, so I basically lost touch with the band in the nineties. And then in, um, in, in the late nineties, we made a move, uh, to, to Scotland and, um, basically everything that we had understood about our pursuit at that time, my wife and me in that kind of pious era just came undone for us. Um, and we were in a different part of the world in a different context completely. And, um, I was in a record shop in Belfast and picked up a couple of albums I had missed and picked up that, you know, their new album, all that you can't leave behind. And, um, yeah, fell in love with that album because it was just, it felt like a return to what I had known. But then uh, about a year or two later, I picked up a couple years later, I picked up Christian Sharon's book. uh, Who's a scholar of culture and theology at at Yale, or at least he was at the time he wrote the book. Um, I think it's called one step closer. And that was like a really shrewd treatment of i think the subtitle is something like why youtube matters to people seeking god or something Mm. like that yeah and he unpacked what they were doing in the 90s and i never understood it It, um and uh, i talked about uh bono's discussion of oscar wilde you know when you you put on a mask you reveal who you really are i was like whoa yeah and how they were basically um journeying through wisdom literature and um the and complexity <laughs> yeah. and um sort of taking up things and looking at them from a different perspective and a lot of questioning and wondering um and that drove me back to Octoon baby um drove me back to uh, zeropa and then to pop and i totally got it whereas i didn't before and and began over the last 15 years or so to really, really appreciate that era <clears throat> for what it is and for what they were doing. Um, and I think that that it's, it's really, really important um, taking on that journey of complexity uh, and I'm uh, peeling back the layers in Zuropa or sorry, Octoon baby. And then um, Zuropa is kind of a sort of a hastily thrown together album. I know that, yeah. but still like some of my favorite songs are on that yeah. album. And especially you and I have talked about the wanderer, which sort of, you know, brings together a lot of what we're doing here. That song for me, I, back in the, 
maybe 2008, 2009, a friend of mine and I at our, at our church were preaching through Mark together. And I began like that song and Mark were mutually interpreting for me, especially mm. that last part. Um, I walked outside the church house where the citizens like to sit. They say they want the kingdom, but they don't want God in it. Yeah. And I was like, that's the gospel of Mark. I mean, it's just this, this challenging, unsettling to the people of God narrative. Um, and then also what I loved about the wanderer was how confessional it was that last verse about, um, I, I went out walking, looking for one good man, mm-hmm. a spirit who would not bend or break, who would sit at God's right hand. sit at the father's right hand, uh, now Jesus, don't you wait up? Oh no, no. I went out walking with a Bible and a gun. The word yes. of God lay heavy on my heart. I was sure I was the one. Now, Jesus, don't you wait up. Jesus, I'll be home soon. Uh, yeah, I went out walking. Um, went out for the papers. I went out for the papers. Told her I'd be back by noon. That, to me, was confessional and dismantling of that Joshua Tree posture of like, um, yeah, look out world. I'm Bono. I am, I'm quoting scripture and I'm mm-hmm. coming at you with this blistering voice and our blistering band and we're going to just kick ass for Jesus. <laughs> and it was just, it, it basically was a way of saying that was meeting violence with violence. And that whole Christian posture of militancy is basically akin to that kind of rascal figure that Johnny Cash portrays when, and when he sings it, which is why I think they wanted him to do it. Yeah, so we should throw some context around that. So that's the closing song of Zuropa. Mm-hmm. So Zuropa was an album that you two recorded basically while on tour for Octung Baby. They like it was just a time period where they were going nonstop, mm-hmm. and these are songs that either they had already started or they worked out on the road. And there are some like. I'm sure there, there, there are songs like the first time that I'm sure we'll probably hit at Ugh. some point in this series because um, I don't just it's got some some things to play with and even a song like "Stay," I still mm-hmm. every time I perform I play that song and it's just this it that that song is one of those you know but there's something about the closing tracks of their records mm-hmm. I'm just thinking about this in real time. because most of them, a lot of my most favorite U2 songs are "Love Is Blindness." Mm. Um, the wanderer wake up dead man like there's these are songs that yeah. resonate with me the most and i've never i don't think i've ever put together how many of them are closing tracks on you know obviously yeah. 40 is like a yeah, there's just yeah. like a, a run through of really interesting totally and, and, and they don't always do the same thing like, no. it's, like, it's, it's not like they bring closure i mean sometimes it ends with like i mean for for them to end octoon baby with love is blindness yeah which what? is whoa. I mean, I we actually that when we got married, we um uh her being escorted down the aisle was a complicated uh issue. So I said, I will walk down, I'll walk I'll walk you down. Like hmm. so I walked my wife down the aisle and you know, I'm very theatrical in my mindset. So it was like we had these, her brothers went, opened up these doors and it was the organ from Love is Blindness was playing mm. as it opened up and she was standing there and then I walked down. It was like, ding, 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 that is awesome. as we're walking down the aisle. <laughs> it was very dramatic. Um, it's gotta be. But yeah, so The Wanderer is an, Bono had a thing where he, 
In the Rattle and Hum era, he wrote a song for Roy Orbison. Basically, like, I like Roy Orbison. I think Roy Orbison has a, you know, so if you're not familiar with Roy Orbison, you are definitely familiar with Pretty Woman. Mm-hmm. And, or maybe Crying, or um, there's a few songs that are in our more, you know, front and center pop cultureness that you mm-hmm. would, and he had a, a voice that was unlike anyone else's voice ever. Bono really liked Orbison and wrote a song from called She's a Mystery to Me, I think is what mm. it's called. And you can find bootleg recordings of Bono and the Edge singing it. Um, and then you can track down that record that, uh, that Orbison sings that on. And then he wrote this song for Johnny Cash. And this was at a point in Johnny Cash's career where he was like, no one wanted to record him anymore. Nobody wanted to um, put him anywhere. Like country music had completely moved on to a a dramatically different sound. He was a relic from really mm-hmm. three or four decades. Oh, totally. Prior Elvis's to that day. Yeah. So it's, yeah. Elvis was long gone at that point. Like yeah. that era was history. Johnny Cash is the only person who could sing this song. Oh, totally. And you're right. Like it's it, it, this song becomes a three dimensional. It becomes three dimensional because it's it he his life does Johnny Cash's life does embody this, but it's not a it's not a biographical song about totally. Johnny Cash. Yeah. So it has these different representations to it that are that work really well. Uh, and you feel like it shouldn't work that well, but it does yeah. for some reason. So totally. when we were talking about doing this, we threw around different things. And I think that the reason that we were thinking about calling this little series, the wander is because of the fact that there are a lot of elements to this one song that represent either our, uh, journeys through disseminating information or, uh, the band is also seems to yeah. be represented by kind of the content of this. And so this, this part, like, I don't know if you want to crack open even a few more of these things. I know you've done, you have sat in this song and have kind of like posited some ideas and this is kind of a teaser for where we may go or how we may, we don't know what we're doing, but totally <laughs> how we may <laughs> we're assess. wandering incoherently. Yeah, exactly. See, that's why it's what it's called. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. That song is like, um, it's sort of, here's the stuff we've seen, you know, coming out of the cold war. We've, we've seen this, we've seen Vegas, basically a standing for America, the shiny place, but you lift up, you lift up, you know, the hood on it. It's just corruption all the way down. Um, it's sort of like, I've seen all this stuff, but also like, you know, the wanderer is also like Solomon, like the person from Ecclesiastes that like went out and did as much as he could, you know, before he repents. I mean, so he's that character. Totally. He's also, I mean, it's also confessional. It's, it's such a, it's a song that it just captures so many dynamics all at once. And it's also like completely carnivalesque. It's like, it's cartoonish. It's got that, um, that kind of circus sound to it. Um, but it's but it's also hauntingly beautiful so it's yeah. it's so many things at once and it's sort of you know the closing song on, on one of their probably least appreciated albums which is it's unfortunate that it's not more widely known but it's it's a beautiful tune and um they performed it at uh, uh some johnny cash tribute during the during the vertigo tour 
and you could see that that on, uh, on YouTube, which is it's it's kind of cool because um, uh, Edge kind of riffs a little bit, you know. I'll put that in the show notes so they can. Yeah, it's so beautiful. It. Love it. Um, but then Pop, I think Pop is is probably the the least accessible U two album. And the most probably misunderstood, and it's probably the one I listen to the most. Yeah, um, because I, it seems to me on the trajectory of, um, so I missed out on them in the '90s, but basically those three albums have helped me interpret like life since, you know, maybe over the last 10, 10 12 years or so. Um, that that album um, is one of it's, it's sort of like Songs of Innocence in which it's utterly truth telling. Mm -hmm. It's, it's just, it's like Octung baby launched this trajectory of like layered lyrics and complexity and analysis of everything that they're passionate about, but from a different perspective and just sending everything up, like take, you know, everything's cartoonish, everything's over the top and that's how they're doing their work. Well, by the time they get to pop, it's like, there's a sense of exhaustion almost, or of like, um, modernity can only the optimism of modernity and its consumeristic impulses and it's it's um love for hyper reality and you know hyper stimulation it just it wears out the human and it's not that they were exhausted but they were expressing the exhaustion of modernity itself totally and it's like it's to me it is so it pulses with life because it's it tells the truth you know, um, I'm down here in the trash looking around for baby Jesus, you no, know, th that's the song I just pulled up. Cause it, that was a song called mofo Yeah, and it, and it begins with looking, you know, looking for to save my soul, looking in the places where no flowers grow, looking for to fill that God shaped hole, looking for mother sucking rock and roll, holy dunk space junk coming in for a splash white dopes on. So yeah, it's an interesting, like the God-shaped whole thing became a really interesting metaphor for me in that time period. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. So it's, I think that that, and that opening stanza versus, um, or in, so the opening lyrics of the wander, I went out walking through streets paved with gold and you just hinted at these things with Vegas and mm. lip. So when you play, it's such a visual song. Mm. I went out walking through streets paved with gold, lifted some stones saw the skin and bones of a city without a soul. Mm -hmm. So a city that's been paved over with this, like, yeah. Uh, I went out walking under an atomic sky where the ground won't turn and the rain, it burns like the tears when I said goodbye. So yeah, it's mm. there, that stanza alone, you're the, what you're playing for, uh, playing with from a societal view, from a human view, then to the personal with that last, like the tears when I yeah. said goodbye. All, yeah. all of that compacted into one little thing is a lot to play with and a lot oh. to sort through. Oh, totally, man. That's some dense songwriting. Um, yeah, then for me, pop has become, it's, it's sort of mournful. It's yes. sort of, um, it's plaintive. It's, um, it's, it's not sad. It's not the right words. It's not necessarily sad. Um, one of my favorite songs, well, whatever I did that, that, that I can preface every song, say that. but uh, one, one song I love is, uh, from that album is playboy mansion, which is, I yep. think is just pure genius. But then the way that that album ends with, um, wake up dead man. 
and all that that song means and how it's a, um, and our, you know, sort of an interpretation of Psalm 43. It's just so powerful. And, um, yeah, there's, I, that's probably the album I go back to the most. That's, that's been helpful for me over the last 12, 13 years or so to kind of understand my own culture and what's happened to it. But the transition from there, when, when understanding this, the narrative trajectory from that song to the very next song they release, which is beautiful right. day is just, it's, it's so wonderful. And then, you know, that album really was, was really helpful for me. Uh, the next album, how to dismantle an atomic bomb was, was equally helpful because you've got the language of celebration and all that you can't leave behind. And then the language of lament, uh, two albums in a row and both sort of journey through scripture as we can probably talk about down the road. Um, yeah. And I, throughout the last 20 years, I've seen, I don't know, maybe nine or 10 of their shows and I've just enjoyed them. They've been such a blast. I thought what they did, I thought the two albums, um, no line on the horizon and then songs of innocence. I thought those two set next to each other were really cool as well. Um, I think that, they tried to articulate something from 30,000 feet with no line on the horizon and mm-hmm. felt frustrated that they couldn't, they, they, I don't think they got across what they wanted to. Right. And so they came right down to street level with songs of innocence and just got absolutely biographical, which I thought was just really cool. Yeah. So it's been, U2 has been the band over for me over the last 40 years. I mean, obviously I, I've just got a lot of other interests and loves, but it's like, that's the one I keep returning to. And every time I do, there are particular beauties to some of their songs that I've not noticed before that, um, like, uh, Oh, running to stand still a couple, a couple weeks ago when I was in the driving my daughter's moving van across the country, running to stand still is just, it's hauntingly beautiful, filled with grace. Um, yeah. So I've, over the years, there's been a lot of, there have been a lot of songs that have been interpreting of my, of, of eras in my life. And, um, I have to say though, at the, at the same time, uh, because it's genuine art, there is that level that their work works at, which is like, it's just great music. Yep. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's helpful. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, art works at that level. It's like, this yeah. is just awesome. And also there are levels of, of where you could sort of keep discussing stuff. Well, and that's a layered thing too. Like I recently learned that the unforgettable fire was, um, inspired by an art exhibit called the unforgettable fire. That was about mm. Hiroshima. Oh, wow. And it was like a photography and painting exhibit that inspired that the edge and Bono went to, and it inspired this bigger thing. And, um, you know, I, and this is stuff we can wrap up, but I think there's stuff like this that we'll get into. Um, we didn't touch on where the streets have no name. And I know that, that is something oh, in, yeah. in set lists and in different things that holds a lot of weight for you. And we've talked in the past about on the pop tour, on the pop mart tour, um, melding, uh, where the streets have no name or what, uh, melding please into where yes. the streets have no name and how that plays sonically, Ugh. lyrically, thematically, uh, emotionally. Like yeah. It's a big thing. Uh, and I think even the, the way you described pop as them being exhausted, not that they were, not that the music is not 
void of ideas. They're not exhausted artistically, yeah. but you have a, there is an exhaustion to this wandering or this journey. That yeah. Like, uh, you feel in there because please is kind of a song. It is kind of the where the streets have no names of that record. Yeah. But then when you look at the content of how different and heavy the, mm. the differences in those two songs are, you can really get a feel for how different they're, where they are at that point oh, as yeah. just humans trying yep. to navigate a, a difficult, you know, a difficult landscape. Yeah. I don't know how many so, times I listened to that transition, those two songs that from that, um, on Spotify. It, yep. It's magic. So I, I think I'll, I'll put together and I'll, and I'll, ha and I'll, before I make it public, I'll send it to you. Cool. Um, we'll make a playlist to go along with this series that has like, so the songs that we talk about, you can kind of like, you can listen. Cause I always like that. Like when I read yeah. a, a music biography, I, that's all I listen to is that. Yeah. Record that's so cool. About. So we'll put well, that together. Cool, man, dude, we have obviously a ton to talk about. <laughs> I'm looking forward to kicking it around, seeing yep. where it goes, yep. seeing where this wandering takes us. So if you guys are into this at all, stay tuned. If not, See you later. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's everywhere. You don't want to go. That's right. This is all that you can't leave behind. <laughs> <laughs> all right. <laughs> cool, See you next man. time. Yeah. All right, folks. That was the first episode of The Wanderer. As you can tell, we were having fun. I hope that uh, it was entertaining for you, too. Ha! I mean you also. That was on accident, believe it or not. I, uh, while this was an introductory conversation of us just kind of laying the groundwork for our history with the band and the music and things that have kind of inspired us, the next episode gets a little bit deeper into some of the narrative structures, some of the more finite theology and ideas in the music. So we hope you guys will come back. This podcast will be, I don't know, here some weeks, not others. It's a wander, right? And as this episode one was titled, Not All Who Wander Are Lost. I'm going to close every episode with a blessing from the patron saint, Black Francis. And it goes as such. If man is five and the devil is six, then God is seven. See you all next time.